Section two of Handbook of Home Rule. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Handbook of Home Rule being articles on the Irish question. American Home Rule by E. L. Godkin. Part one. American experience has been frequently cited in the course of the controversy now raging in England over the Irish question both by way of warning and of example for instance i have found in the times as well as in other journals the spectator i think among the number very contemptuous dismissals of the plan of offering ireland a government like that of an american state on the ground that the americans are loyal to the central authority while in ireland there is a strong feeling of hostility to it which would probably increase under home rule the queen's writ it has been remarked cannot be said to run in large parts of ireland while in every part of the united states the federal writ is implicitly obeyed and the ministers of federal authority find ready aid and sympathy from the people if i remember rightly the duke of argyle has been very emphatic in pointing out the difference between giving local self-government to a community in which the tendencies of popular feeling are centrifugal and giving it to one in which the tendencies are centripetal the inference to be drawn was of course that as long as ireland disliked the imperial government the concession of home rule would be unsafe and would only become safe when the irish people showed somewhat the same sort of affection for the english connection which the people of the state of new york now feel for the constitution of the united states among the multitude of those who have taken part in the controversy on one side or the other no one has so far as i have observed pointed out that the state of feeling in america toward the central government with which the state of feeling in ireland towards the british government is now compared did not exist when the american constitution was set up that the political tendencies in america at that time were centrifugal not centripetal and that the extraordinary love and admiration with which the americans now regard the federal government are the result of eighty years experience of its working the first confederation was as much as the people could bear in the way of surrendering local powers when the war of independence came to an end it was its hopeless failure to provide peace and security which led to the framing of the present constitution but even with this experience still fresh the adoption of the constitution was no easy matter i shall not burden this article with historical citations showing the very great difficulty which the framers of the constitution had in inducing the various states to adopt it or the magnitude and variety of the fears and suspicions with which many of the most influential men in all parts of the country regarded it any one who wishes to know how numerous and diversified these fears and suspicions were cannot do better than read the series of papers known as the federalist written mainly by hamilton and madison to commend the new plan to the various states it was adopted almost as a matter of necessity that is as the only way out of the slough of despond in which the confederation had plunged the union of the states but the objections to it which were felt at the beginning were only removed by actual trial hamilton's two colleagues as delegates from new york yates and lansing withdrew in disgust from the convention as soon as the constitution was outlined and did not return the notion that the constitution was produced by the craving of the american people for something of that sort to love and revere 
and that it was not bestowed on them until they had given ample assurance that they would lavish affection on it has no foundation whatever in fact the devotion of americans to the union is indeed as clear a case of cause and effect as is to be found in political history they have learned to like the constitution because the country has prospered under it and because it has given them all the benefits of national life without interference with local liberties if they had not set up a central government until the centrifugal sentiment had disappeared from the states and the feeling of loyalty for a central authority had fully shown itself they would assuredly never have set it up at all moreover it has to be borne in mind that the adoption of the constitution did not involve the surrender of any local franchises by which the people of the various states set great store the states preserved fully four-fifths of their autonomy or in fact nearly all of it which closely concerned the daily lives of individuals set aside the post office and a citizen of the state of new york not engaged in foreign trade might down to the outbreak of the civil war have passed a long and busy life without once coming in contact with a united states official and without being made aware in any of his doings by any restriction or regulation that he was living under any government but that of his own state if he went abroad he had to apply for a united states passport if he quarrelled with a foreigner or with the citizen of another state he might be sued in the federal court if he imported foreign goods he had to pay duties to the collector of a federal custom-house if he invented something or wrote a book he had to apply to the department of the interior for a patent or a copyright but how few there were in the first seventy years of american history who had any of these experiences no one supposes or has ever supposed that had the federalists demanded any very large sacrifice of local franchises are attempted to set up even a close approach to a centralized government the adoption of the constitution would have been possible if for instance such a transfer of both administration and legislation to the central authority as took place in ireland after the union had been proposed it would have been rejected with derision you will get no american to argue with you on this point if you ask him whether he thinks it likely that a highly centralized government could have been created in eighteen seventy nine such a one for example as ireland has been under since eighteen hundred or whether if created it would by this time have won the affection of the people or filled them with centripetal tendencies he will answer you with a smile the truth is that nowhere any more than in ireland do people love their government from a sense of duty or because they crave an object of political affection or even because it exalts them in the eyes of foreigners they love it because they are happy or prosperous under it because it supplies security in the form best suited to their tastes and habits or in some manner ministers to their self-love loyalty to the king as the lord's anointed without any sense either of favors received or expected has played a great part in european politics i admit but for reasons which i will not here take up space in stating a political arrangement whether it be an elected monarch or a constitution cannot be made in our day to reign in men's hearts except as the result of benefits so palpable that common people as well as political philosophers can see them and count them many of the opponents of home rule too point to the vigor with which the united states government put down the attempt made by the south to break up the union as an example of the american love of imperial unity 
and of the spirit in which england should now meet the irish demands for local autonomy this again is rather surprising because you will find no one in america who will maintain for one moment that troops could have been raised in eighteen sixty to undertake the conquest of the south for the purpose of setting up a centralized administration or in other words for the purpose of wiping out state lines or diminishing state authority no man or party proposed anything of this kind at the outbreak of the war or would have dared to propose it the object for which the north rose in arms and which lincoln had in view when he called for troops was the restoration of the union just as it was when south carolina seceded barring the extension of slavery into the territories during the first year of the war certainly the revolted states might at any time have had peace on the status quo basis that is without the smallest diminution of their rights and immunities under the constitution it was only when it became evident that the war would have to be fought out to a finish as the pugilists say that is that it would have to end at a complete conquest of the southern territory that the question what would become of the states as a political organization after the struggle was over began to be debated at all what did become of them how did americans deal with home rule after it had been used to set on foot against the central authority what the newspapers used to delight in calling the greatest rebellion the world ever saw the answer to these questions is it seems to me a contribution of some value to the discussion of the irish problem in its present stage if american precedents can throw any light whatever on it there was a joint committee of both houses of congress appointed in eighteen sixty six to consider the condition of the south with reference to the safety or expediency of admitting the states lately in rebellion to their old relations to the union including representation in congress it contained besides such fanatical enemies of the south as thaddeus stevens such very conservative men as mr fessenden mr grimes mr morrill and mr conkling here is the account they gave of the condition of southern feeling one year after lee's surrender examining the evidence taken by your committee still further in connection with facts too notorious to be disputed it appears that the southern press with few exceptions and those mostly of newspapers recently established by northern men abounds with weekly and daily abuse of the institutions and people of the loyal states defends the men who led and the principles which incited the rebellion denounces and reviles southern men who adhered to the union and strives constantly and unscrupulously by every means in its power to keep alive the fire of hate and discord between the sections calling upon the president to violate his oath of office overturn the government by force of arms and drive the representatives of the people from their seats in congress the national banner is openly insulted and the national airs scoffed at not only by an ignorant populace but at public meetings and once among other notable instances at a dinner given in honor of a notorious rebel who had violated his oath and abandoned his flag the same individual is elected to an important office in the leading city of his state although an unpardoned rebel and so offensive that the president refuses to allow him to enter upon his official duties in another state the leading general of the rebel armies is openly nominated for governor by the speaker of the house of delegates and the nomination is hailed by the people with shouts of satisfaction and openly endorsed by the press 
the evidence of an intense hostility to the federal union and an equally intense love of the late confederacy nurtured by the war is decisive while it appears that nearly all are willing to submit at least for the time being to the federal authority it is equally clear that the ruling motive is a desire to obtain the advantages which will be derived from a representation in congress officers of the union army on duty and northern men who go south to engage in business are generally detested and proscribed southern men who adhere to the union are bitterly hated and relentlessly persecuted in some localities prosecutions have been instituted in state courts against union officers for acts done in the line of official duty and similar prosecutions are threatened elsewhere as soon as the united states troops are removed all such demonstrations show a state of feeling against which it is unmistakably necessary to guard the testimony is conclusive that after the collapse of the confederacy the feelings of the people of the rebellious states was that of abject submission having appealed to the tribunal of arms they had no hope except that by the magnanimity of their conquerors their lives and possibly their property might be preserved unfortunately the general issue of pardons to persons who had been prominent in the rebellion and the feeling of kindliness and conciliation manifested by the executive and very generally indicated throughout the northern press had the effect to render whole communities forgetful of the crime they had committed defiant toward the federal government and regardless of their duties as citizens the conciliatory measures of the government do not seem to have been met even halfway the bitterness and defiance exhibited towards the united states under such circumstances is without a parallel in the history of the world in return for our leniency we receive only an insulting denial of our authority in return for our kind desire for the resumption of fraternal relations we receive only an insolent assumption of rights and privileges long since forfeited the crime we have punished is paraded as a virtue and the principles of republican government which we have vindicated at so terrible a cost are denounced as unjust and oppressive if we add to this evidence the fact that although peace has been declared by the president he has not to this day deemed it safe to restore the writ of habeas corpus to relieve the insurrectionary states of martial law nor to withdraw the troops from many localities and that the commanding general deems an increase of the army indispensable to the preservation of order and the protection of loyal and well-disposed people in the south the proof of a condition of feeling hostile to the union and dangerous to the government throughout the insurrectionary states would seem to be overwhelming this committee recommended a series of coercive measures the first of which was the adoption of the fourteenth amendment to the constitution which disqualified for all office either under the united states or under any state any person who having in any capacity taken an oath of allegiance to the united states afterwards engaged in rebellion or gave aid and comfort to the rebels this denied the jus honorum to all the leading men at the south who had survived the war in addition to it an act was passed in march eighteen sixty seven which put all the rebel states under military rule until a constitution should have been framed by a convention elected by all males over twenty-one except such as would be excluded from office by the above-named constitutional amendment if it were adopted which at that time it had not been another act was passed three weeks later prescribing for voters in the states lately in rebellion what was known as the ironclad oath 
which excluded from the franchise not only all who had borne arms against the united states but all who having ever held any office for which the taking an oath of allegiance to the united states was a qualification had afterwards ever given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof this practically disenfranchised all the white men of the south over twenty-five years old on this legislation there grew up as all the world now knows what was called the carpet-bag regime swarms of northern adventurers went down to the southern states organized the ignorant negro voters constructed state constitutions to suit themselves got themselves elected to all the chief offices plundered the state treasuries contracted huge state debts and stole the proceeds in connivance with legislatures composed mainly of negroes of whom the most intelligent and instructed had been barbers and hotel waiters in some of the states such as south carolina and mississippi in which the negro population were in the majority the government became a mere caricature i was in columbia the capital of south carolina in eighteen seventy two during the session of the legislature when you could obtain the passage of almost any measure you pleased by a small payment at that time seven hundred dollars to an old negro preacher who controlled the colored majority under the pretense of fitting up committee rooms the private lodging rooms at the boarding houses of the negro members in many instances were extravagantly furnished with wilton and brussels carpets mirrors and sofas a thousand dollars were expended for two hundred elegant imported china spittoons there were only one hundred and twenty-three members in the house of representatives but the residue were perhaps transferred to the private chambers of the legislators now how did the southern whites deal with this state of things well i am sorry to say they manifested their discontent very much in the way in which the irish have for the last hundred years been manifesting theirs if as the english opponents of home rule seem to think readiness to commit outrages and refusal to sympathize with the victims of outrages indicate political incapacity the whites of the south showed in the period between eighteen sixty six and eighteen seventy six that they were utterly unfit to be entrusted with the work of self-government they could not rise openly in revolt because the united states troops were everywhere at the service of the carpet-baggers for the suppression of armed resistance they did not send petitions to congress or write letters to the northern newspapers or hold indignation meetings they simply formed a huge secret society on the model of the molly maguires or moonlighters whose special function was to intimidate flog mutilate or murder political opponents in the night-time this society was called the ku klux klan let me give some account of its operation and i shall make it as brief as possible it had become so powerful in eighteen seventy one that president grant in that year in his message to congress declared that a condition of things existed in some of the states of the union rendering life and property insecure and the carrying of the mails and the collecting of the revenue dangerous a joint select committee of congress was accordingly appointed early in eighteen seventy two to inquire into the condition of affairs in the late insurrectionary states so far as regards the execution of laws and the safety of the lives and property of the citizens of the united states its report now lies before me and it reads uncommonly like the speech of an irish secretary in the house of commons bringing in a suppression of crime bill the committee say 
there is a remarkable concurrence of testimony to the effect that in those of the late rebellious states into whose condition we have examined the courts and juries administer justice between man and man in all ordinary cases civil and criminal and while there is concurrence on this point the evidence is equally decisive that redress cannot be obtained against those who commit crimes in disguise and at night the reasons assigned are that identification is difficult almost impossible that when this is attempted the combinations and oaths of the order come in and release the culprit by perjury either upon the witness stand or in the jury box and that the terror inspired by their acts as well as the public sentiment in their favor in many localities paralyzes the arm of civil power the murders and outrages which have been perpetrated in many counties of middle and west tennessee during the past few months have been so numerous and of such an aggravated character as almost baffles investigation in these counties a reign of terror exists which is so absolute in its nature that the best of citizens are unable or unwilling to give free expression to their opinions the terror inspired by the secret organization known as the ku klux klan is so great that the officers of the law are powerless to execute its provisions to discharge their duties or to bring the guilty perpetrators of these outrages to the punishment they deserve their stealthy movements are generally made under cover of night and under masks and disguises which render their identification difficult if not impossible to add to the secrecy which envelops their operations is the fact that no information of their murderous acts can be obtained without the greatest difficulty and danger in the localities where they are committed no one dares to inform upon them or take any measures to bring them to punishment because no one can tell but that he may be the next victim of their hostility or animosity the members of this organization with their friends aiders and abettors take especial pains to conceal all their operations your committee believe that during the past six months the murders to say nothing of other outrages would average one a day or one for every twenty-four hours that in the great majority of these cases they have been perpetrated by the klu klux above referred to and few if any have been brought to punishment a number of the counties of this state tennessee are entirely at the mercy of this organization and roving bands of nightly marauders bid defiance to civil authorities and threaten to drive out every man white or black who does not submit to their arbitrary dictation to add to the general lawlessness of these communities bad men of every description take advantage of the circumstances surrounding them and perpetrate acts of violence from personal or pecuniary motives under the plea of political necessity here is some of the evidence on which the report was based end of section two